Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. So today, in this bonus episode, we're going to round up the winners and losers from the autumn statement that took place last week on the 22nd of November. With me to discuss all of the main highlights and how and why they matter to you is Interactive Investors Personal Finance Editor Craig Rickman. So we're going to be discussing all of this in more detail, but just to give a very quick overview. So the main changes that were announced were a potential really big shakeup to the workplace pension landscape, which is the potential introduction of a pension pot for life. There were also changes to ISAs and a boost for workers as there were cuts made to national insurance. But Craig, let's start off with the triple lock. Once again, as seems to be the case leading up to every autumn statement or budget these days, there's always speculation that the triple lock could be tweaked or more radically reformed in some way. But the good news is that the triple lock will be maintained. So, Craig, how much will the state pension be rising from from next April? Yeah, I mean, just as a sort of place to start, it's great news for retirees because it means the state pension will receive a bumper 8.5% boost from April, like you were saying, there was talking to the lead up of the autumn statement. The hunt may opt for a lower figure, one that stripped out the one-off bonus payments to NHS staff and civil servants. But instead, the Chancellor has chosen to keep the triple lock in its absolute form, which is great news for retirees. So looking at this in, in pounds and pence, it means the basic state pension will rise to £169.50 a week from April. That's £8,814 a year while the full state pension will hike to £221.20 a week, which is more than 11500 a year. So, you know, these changes will make a big difference to retirees, especially those who rely heavily on the state pension to meet their outgoings. And sticking with the winners, as mentioned, there's also good news for workers, including those that are self-employed, following cuts that would be made to national insurance. Craig, could you run through the details of that? Yes, so yeah, sweeping changes to uh, the national insurance regime, some some pretty hefty cuts. Just as an overview, uh, national insurance or NI, as it's known, is a tax that you pay on earnings and self-employed profits. Importantly, if you're above the state pension age, you don't pay national insurance, whether you're still working or not. But yeah, as you said, we, we saw changes for both employees and the self-employed. Let's focus on em- employees first. So the main rate of of class one national insurance will drop from 12% to 10% with this change coming into effect on January the 6th. 27 million workers are set to benefit here. So it's a big, big change. According to government calculations, someone on the average UK salary of £35,000 a year will save £450 next year. So um, it is a a, a notable change to the system. Moving on to self-employed. So class two national insurance contributions will be abolished from April, completely scrapped. These are a fixed weekly amount paid by sole traders and and partnerships. The current rate is £3.45 a week for the current tax year. Scrapping them could save self-employed workers £190 a year from next year. So that's class two national insurance. The other one is class four, which is a tax paid on profits between 12,570 and 50,270. This rate will reduce from 9% to 8%, also due to take effect from April. And as a result of this change, again, sole traders and partnerships could save 
up to £377 a year. It's worth stating that these changes will cost the government around £10 billion a year to sort of give you an idea of the, the sort of size of this change, especially when you factor in the IHT receipts, inheritance tax, sorry, are roughly £7 billion a year. So, yeah, it gives you an idea of, of just how big this change is. And those cuts to NI, they were a bit of a surprise. They weren't really predicted in the run-up to the autumn statement. But arguably an even bigger surprise is this potential idea of a pension pot for life. Now, it's important to caveat that at this stage, there's hardly any details. And it's something that the government said it will be consulting on. So it may not come to fruition. But for me, this could be a very big game changer to make people become more engaged with their pensions. Obviously, the idea here is that you take your pension pot with you when you change jobs. And I think the average person changes jobs around 11 times in their life. So in theory, you know, if you have the one pension and that pension is moved with you as you change jobs, then the hope here is that it'll make people become more engaged with how they invest their pension, how much they've got in their pension. And then they can think about more about whether they're actually saving enough for their retirement. And if the case is that they're not saving enough, then they can act accordingly. If possible, they could, you know, increase contributions, of course, if they can afford to do that. And the reality is these days is that if you're under the age of 40, the chances are you're going to be in a salary-related pension, a defined contribution scheme. You won't be in a defined benefit or a final salary pension as it's known. And if you are in a defined contribution pension, then the onus is more on you as an individual to take control of your financial future. And unfortunately, despite auto-enrollment you know, being a success, most people they're not setting enough money aside for later life. And sadly, most people also don't engage with how their pension is invested, so they don't know how they're investing towards their retirement. What are your thoughts, Craig, on this potential idea of the pension pot for life? Yeah, I think it's possibly the, the biggest potential development concerning workplace pensions for more than a decade when, like you say, when, when all-term enrolment was introduced. It could be a game changer. Um, rumours about this first surfaced on the Monday before the autumn statement, but like with any rumours, you never know whether they're actually going to be pushed through. It kind of has, or, or at least it's at the consultation stage. Personally, I, I think it's promising. We have a looming retirement crisis in the UK. There is a real risk that many people will reach later life with insufficient savings. So we do need some solutions. Again, yeah, I agree with what you say about engagement. I think if, if people have a single pot that follows them throughout their career, then it will be much easier to keep on track of where their savings are in relation to their retirement goals. As things stand, there's around 26 billion in lost or misplaced pensions in the UK. So it's a huge problem. I think the pot for life would go some way to solving that problem. You can consolidate pensions, but it's something that it does take some effort. It does take some action. That said, overhauling the current workplace pensions regime would be no walk in the park. There's a lot to consider. While it would reduce the administrative headache for savers, some of that could shift to employers. I would argue that savers are those that we need to prioritise. And also, there's there's no guarantee, obviously, that this consultation will come to fruition. There's there's still an awful lot that can happen. But I think the fact that the conversation has started and the com and the consultation has too is is promising. But we're obviously just going to have to wait and see what happens. So at this stage, it is very much watch this space. However, there were changes made to the ISA landscape. 
and there was lots of rumours about this happening ahead of the autumn statement. And many of these changes have been made in an attempt to make ICES more flexible. So the main change is that the government is going to allow multiple subscriptions to ICES of the same type every year from next April, so April 2024. Under the current rules, you can only open one type of ISA each tax year, so cash, stocks and shares, or innovative finance. There's also the help to buy ISA, but this is no longer available for new subscribers. To smooth this process of having multiple ISAs in any tax year, the government has announced it will allow partial transfers of ISA funds in-year between providers from next April. So that was the main ISA change. There were a couple of other tweaks to ISAs that were also made. One of those is that from next April, long-term asset funds known as LTAFs are going to be permitted investments in the innovative finance ISA. So these LTAFs are a new type of fund structure that was recently introduced. They invest in illiquid assets, so things like real estate, infrastructure, venture capital, private equity, private debt, and they differ from open-ended funds in having notice periods of at least 90 days. Now, these notice periods aim to potentially address the shortcomings with illiquid assets in open-ended funds, which are daily dealing, whereas LTAFs, as mentioned, they have these notice periods, so they're not daily dealing. With open-ended funds that invest in illiquid assets, particularly with property, We've seen time and time again over the years that when there's periods of stress, when there's a big rush to the exits, open-ended property funds put fund suspensions in place, which bar investors from getting their money out of the fund until the fund is reopened. And that is due to the illiquid nature of that asset class. To be honest, I thought it was a little bit strange to see that these LTAFs are allowed in the innovative finance ISA, but not the stocks and shares ISA. I don't really know why that's the case, but it could be because the fact that they're not daily dealing. But that's just a bit of a hunch on my part, to be honest. So I don't know if that's completely the reason why. In any case, I do think to watch this space with LTAFs because there's not that many available at the moment. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see whether, you know, there are a lot of these funds launched in the coming years and whether some existing open-ended funds are restructured into LTAFs, those that invest in the liquid assets. And also whether or not there is a lot of interest from retail investors for this new fund structure. Craig, there are a couple of other ISA announcements. Do you mind running through them? No problem. Yeah, I'll uh, provide a, a whistle-stop tour. So first is the digitization of the ISA reporting system to enable the development of digital tools to support investors. That should make things a bit simpler. So good news. Second, the inclusion of certain fractional shares. So this is something that, that people have been lobbying for in the run-up to the autumn statement. Um, we covered it on the previous podcast. It was quite a, a stark U-turn from HMRC who issued a statement in early October saying that fractional shares were not allowed within an ISA, but there's been some change here. So from April next year, stock traders who want to trade a portion of the share in some cases will be able to protect gains from the taxman from April. So that's good news. So the third is the removal of the requirement to reapply for an existing ISA annually. This means that if you have an ISA that's dormant, you'll no longer have to reapply to open it. Again, that should make things a bit simpler. And the final one was the tweaking of the account opening age for any adult ISA to 18. What this basically means is as things stand, you can take out a cash ISA from age 16, but from April, this will rise to 18. So 
we've covered the winners. We're now going to move on to the losers. And in terms of ices, as me and Craig have just discussed and talked through, there was a number of changes to the ISA system. But there are also a couple of things that weren't announced, which fall into the loser's bucket. Now, investors were hoping for an increased ISA allowance. However, this did not materialise, so those investors would be disappointed. So the £20,000 a year limit of investing in ISAs, that has been at that level since April 2017. And that is going to be frozen again for the 2024-2025 tax year. The junior ICE allowance will also remain at its current level of £9,000. Back in the day, the ICE allowance tended to increase with inflation, but that has you know, certainly not been the case since 2017. And another thing that wasn't announced was this proposed new British ISA. So it had been suggested that the ISA allowance would go up from 20000 to 25000 with the extra 5000 reserved solely to invest in the UK stock market. So UK equity funds and individual UK listed shares. Fund management firm Premier Mighton had lobbied the government for this new British ISA. While it was not announced in the autumn statement last week, I do think one day this could become a reality to encourage investors to, to back the UK stock market. There's been you know lots and lots of outflows from the UK market for a number of years now. It's a very unloved market. The shares are very cheap, but despite the shares being very cheap, investors continue to broaden their horizons by investing more internationally rather than the UK. And I do think that one day, you know, the government could step in and create this sort of new ISA in order to encourage those investors to return back home. Craig, what are your thoughts? Do you think this British ISA could materialise one day? And were you surprised that the ISA allowance has once again remained frozen? Sure, yeah. Yeah, focusing on the, the new ISA first. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's something that we could see in the future. I think it's it's a much bigger decision than purely upping the allowance and allowing investors to put their money wherever they like. So perhaps the government is is giving itself a, a bit of time here. But again, yeah, I, I agree. I think it's something we could see in the future. I think one of the interesting things is um, with regards to the sort of discussion around the merging of, of stocks and shares and cash ISAs is the government has equalised the minimum age for all ISAs because that's something that we flagged as a sticking point last time with the minimum age for cash 16 and, and 18 for stocks and shares. Yeah, that may sort of prove a hurdle, but the fact that that has been equalised could lay the groundwork for the merging of stocks and shares and, and cash versions in the future. So I think, again, that's something that we could also see in the future. With regards to the ISA allowance being frozen, I think it's a bit of a shame as it's been six years since we saw an uptick here. Uh, and especially given we've seen high inflation over the couple of years, over the past couple of years, sorry, it means the 20,000 allowance has been eroded over this period. I think also to bear in mind is that the CGT and dividend allowances are both halving from April. Some extra ISA allowance would help some investors keep the tax man at bay. However, it's only some because there's only 15% of investors use the full ISA allowance every year. So failing to increase it will only affect a small proportion of investors. However, you know, I think in an ideal world, the ISA allowance would rise every year in line with inflation. So I guess the, the decision to, to freeze the, the allowance is a shame, but I, I don't think it's a huge shock. And the final ISA change that some people wanted, which was not announced, was regarding the lifetime ISA. So there's a lifetime ISA penalty 
if you withdraw funds from the lifetime ISA and you're not using that ISA for its intended purpose, which is to invest in your first property or invest towards your retirement. However, this penalty remains unchanged. For more details on that penalty and how it's unfair, then please do go back to our episode a couple of weeks ago that me and Craig covered in the run-up to the autumn statement. And also regarding the lifetime ISA, there's a £450,000 limit on a property purchase if you're using the ISA to put towards your first property. As we know, in certain areas of the country, the average house price is above that limit, and that limit has not risen since the lifetime ISA launched. It's not been going up in line with property prices. Another big thing that didn't crop up, despite plenty of column inches being written in the run-up to the statement, was inheritance tax. Craig, once again, there were no changes or reforms. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, yeah there, there, were, uh, there were leaks the weekend before the autumn statement, like you said, that the government was eyeing up some, some pretty significant reform to inheritance tax. The things that were being spoken about were reducing the headline rate from 40% to either 30 or perhaps even 20% and shaking up the tax-free threshold. So I think many would have been hoping to, to see some reform. We didn't get it, not at this fiscal event anyway. Was I surprised? I guess sort of yes and no. I think it's a shame because some reform around IHT is, is desperately needed. The nil rate band, which is the amount uh, that you can own before you start paying IHT has been frozen at 325000 since 2009 and will remain frozen until 2028. And so for that band to be upticked at some point, I think is long overdue. And I think also given that IHT is such an emotive tax, any changes to the current system would be a popular vote winner. So I think there's every chance that we could see some changes, perhaps as soon as next year's spring budget with a general election to be called shortly after. Clearly lots can change between now and then, but I do think that some reform to the inheritance tax system is, is very much in train. So it's just one of those where we're just going to have to watch this space. And the final item we're going to cover off, which is in the loser category, is income tax thresholds remaining frozen. Now, there wasn't any expectation that these income tax thresholds would be changed in the autumn statement. They were announced a couple of years ago, and these income tax thresholds are frozen until 2027. But I think it's worth just reminding people that these thresholds are in place and that, you know, as the years go by, more and more people are going to be caught out by what is known as fiscal drag. So, Craig, could you give a quick overview of what fiscal drag is and how much people are worse off by it? Yes, uh, fiscal drag, uh, a hideous piece of industry jargon. So let's unpack what it means. So in a nutshell, fiscal drag is when tax thresholds fail to keep pace with rising costs. So it's a stealth tax, a, a more covert way for the government to boost its coffers without increasing the headline rates of tax. So let's look at an example of fiscal drag in action. So if we take someone, someone earning £50,000 a year by freezing the income tax thresholds until 2028, this individual, assuming their income kept pace with inflation over this period, would see their tax bill rise from £12,340 in the 2022 23 tax year to 16,592 by 2728. So that's more than £4,000 a year, a sizable, sizable sum. What's more, if that individual is a parent and can claim child benefit, then they would lose a further £2,000 as child benefit entitlement reduces by 
1% for every £100 you earn above £50,000. So by the time your income hits £60,000, child benefit is lost. So the individual in this example could be £6,000 a year worse off purely from tax bans being frozen. So yeah, yeah, it's it's a big problem. Uh, the government intends to keep tax thresholds frozen for the next few years, but it would be a big help to people if this decision was reversed and the tax bans increased in line with inflation every year. So that's it for another autumn statement. As always, the devil is in the detail. I mean, those announcements surrounding the changes to the ISA system, they were not in the speech at all by Jeremy Hunt. They were in the, the paperwork that was released afterwards. And as is always the case, there's always winners, there's always losers from autumn statements. There's always lots of speculation in the run-up. Some of that speculation does come to fruition. Some of it doesn't, like with inheritance tax. And we will, of course, keep a close eye on this potential pension pot for life. And when more details emerge, we'll cover it in a future episode of On The Money. My thanks to Craig, and thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions, and tell us what you would like to talk about via email. And that email is otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website, which is ii.co.uk. I'll see you on Thursday.